Well, good evening. Once again, I'd ask you to take out your Bibles, but this time turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. That's where we're going to be looking at in just a little bit. We may not start out right there, but we'll be looking at that text in just a moment. Let me say again how wonderful it is to be with you this evening. It's hard to believe that it has uh, come to an end already this week. It's uh, been a wonderful week, at least for me. My family, we certainly have enjoyed it. It's been just a beautiful week and uh, good to end this week uh, being with the Lewises, uh, Carrie and, and Mark this evening, enjoyed their company and uh, kids enjoyed being outside and playing around and seeing bees and ch- chickens and four-wheelers and those types of things. It's just good to relax just a little bit and enjoy yourselves and uh, appreciate their good hospitality. Enjoyed talking with them and being encouraged by them. Good, good people, as, as you all are. We've, we've certainly just enjoyed all week long getting to know you better, as we've had associations certainly in the past, but just uh, have just enjoyed it and grown deeper in our relationship with one another. Uh, I want to begin by saying I appreciate you inviting me to come this week. Uh, many of you had heard me speak before and knew what you were getting, and in spite of that, you still invited me to come back, and I, and I appreciate I appreciate that very much, uh, your confidence in me and being able to proclaim God's Word. And it cer- certainly is a privilege and something I do not take lightly, and, and I know you do not either, so I certainly appreciate that. I want to thank uh, God using me as an instrument, uh, not only this week, but whenever I have the opportunity. And hopefully as we go forth, as Joshua prayed just a moment ago, that we can all be more edified and uh, we can be better and closer to God and that we can grow together as, a, as God's family. Uh, it is a, a wonderful thing that we look forward to as we all have the same goal of being uh, with God forever. I want to thank everyone this week who has had us into your homes and uh, invited us in to feed our family. It's not easy to feed nine mouths, and uh, I hope you did not fret over that too much. Uh, but we certainly appreciate that, and I, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I, that's not something that we take lightly, and we do thank you so much. Uh, menu every night was just wonderful, and uh, so this was probably about a five-pound meeting, I think. And uh, but for, fortunately, we were able to play enough this week. We were able to work it off a little bit too. So uh, just really appreciate that so much. Um, also appreciate the attendance of everyone. Just excellent attendance. We we've had visitors every night, but. More importantly than visitors, we've had we've had your own members who have been consistently here, uh, if not every night, almost every night, every, just about everybody was here, and, and particularly those who have small children. I, I, I know how difficult that is for you. I know sometimes uh, we will, uh, if Alina and I have been to a meeting and uh, we were listening to the preacher preach and afterwards and say, well, what did you think about the sermon? She said, what sermon? You know, that kind of thing. I know how difficult it may be, especially for mothers, uh, but you know those who with small children, just getting them here is difficult enough every night of the week, And uh, but you saw that as a priority for yourself and for your children, and that's to be commended. I certainly do appreciate that. I'm, a, I'm encouraged by that, and I, I, I commend you to continue to show your children uh, what a priority that is, to be right with God and to hear God's Word and to to be with his saints. Uh, what a wonderful privilege that is. I want to thank this congregation as, in general, just aside from this meeting, uh, in taking care of my mom. You know, uh, just being there for her over the last few years. You know, things uh, sometimes can be difficult around the house, and uh, always somebody there to step in and help her get the lawnmower started or, or something like that, cut down branches, pick up things. Uh, just uh, really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to be seven hours away and wish that I could go uh, fix a board in the fence or something like that. Uh, we try to do as much as we can when we're here, but it's good to know that good brethren are are looking after each other, and I, and I certainly hear about that and appreciate that so much, and uh, I hope that you'll continue to do that as well. And I just appreciate this congregation in general. Just to know that this congregation uh, was formed not out of ill will, but out of strong conviction and deep desire to do God's will. I, I really appreciate that. And what a wonderful example that you are being to the rest of this city and a shining light on this hill uh, here in North Columbus. And I commend you to God's word and to be strong in that, to not compromise, uh, not to 
certainly not to have peace at any price, but peace that is based upon the unity in, in God's Word. And that is what you have done in your short history, and I know that you will continue to do that, and I appreciate that. God bless you all. We're going to be leaving tomorrow morning, Lord willing, and heading back to Owensboro, just a seven-hour trip. We, our gospel meeting is starting as we speak back home. It is just a weekend meeting, so we're going to try to get back for that next, tomorrow evening. So I, I solicit your prayers for me and my family as we travel uh, tomorrow, so please keep us in your prayers. As we conclude this week, I want to talk about one of my favorite Bible characters, and that is David. Uh, David uh, is a wonderful man in the Bible, uh, certainly not without flaws, but none of us are, and maybe that's what makes him so real to us. When we look at the life of David, maybe we know more about David than we do any other Old Testament character besides Moses himself. And as you look at David, one thing that Paul calls him in the book of Acts is a man after God's own heart. And what a wonderful thing to be referred to, a characterization of a person, to be known as someone who follows after God. You know, we say sometimes there's a man after my own heart. Maybe he, is, he likes something that we like, that shares in common. He, he eats barbecue. And I said, there's a man after my own heart right there. He likes barbecue. Well, that to be said of God about David. Here's a man after my own heart. Someone who shares characteristics and qualities about uh, of God. What a wonderful example he certainly is. And as we look at him, David, we see in his life he was a, a caring individual, certainly a tender and loving person, certainly uh, someone who was brave as we look at some of the stories of his soldiers, uh, being a soldier and fighting, certainly a respectful man. But maybe more than anything else, I think it's safe to say that David had a passionate heart for God, that he was one who was filled with much zeal. David's son Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your might. And I can't help but wonder if when Solomon penned those words, certainly uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he thought of his father David, who did just that. And whatever he found to do, he did with all of his might. It didn't matter what he was doing. He was passionate, and he was zealous about it, and playing his harp, writing his psalms, uh, tending to his sheep, fighting in a battle. Sometimes that passion was wrongly directed, as in the example in 1 Samuel chapter 25, as he directs that passion towards Nabal, the husband of his future wife, Abigail. But most of the time, his passion was commendable. And I think his passion is seen in some of the psalms that he wrote. For example, in Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I do with my life, is just sing praises to God to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Psalm 18 and verse 3, I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. Psalm 145 and verse 3, great is the Lord and highly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 138 and verse 1, I will give you thanks with all my heart. Notice, I'm going to give you everything, all of my being, all of my heart. But you know, not only in his writings do we see that zeal and passion of David, but we also see it in incidents in David's life that just show how passionate his heart was uh, with, for God. We see that zeal coming out. And tonight I want us to look at one incident in particular that, uh, that exemplifies that passionate heart that he had. And it's an inc incident that is recorded both in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as well as 1 Chronicles. So we're going to be looking at both of those passages this evening. But I want us to begin in 1 Chronicles 13. But before I do, I want to set the stage for what was going on here because David was certainly passionate about worshiping and serving his God. At this particular point in David's life, he had been king now for some time. But over 40 years before David even became king of Israel, you remember that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and had taken it to their Philistine cities. And after a series of events and experiencing much hardship as a result of capturing the Ark of the Covenant, they decide they're going to send it back to the Israelites. And it resided for a while, you remember, in the Levite town of Beshemesh. And they eventually had it moved to Kiriath-Jerim. Well, after gaining control of the entire nation, we come here to 1 Chronicles chapter 13, and David's passion for the Lord moves him to want to move the Ark of the Covenant 
now to Jerusalem, to the city that he had recently built. And as we look here in 1 Chronicles 13, it says in verse 1, when David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader, David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen to remain in all the land of Israel, who to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities, with their pasture lands, that they may meet us, and let us bring back the ark of, of God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul, his predecessor. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in all the eyes of the people. So David assembled all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Baalah, which is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim where his name is called. And so that's his decision. He gets together with all these people and says, let's get together and bring the Ark of the Covenant back. And so that's what we begin to see him doing here in this passage. I'm going to skip verse 7, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. But look here in verse 8, how it describes them bringing back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might even with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, cymbals, and and with trumpets. I want you to notice here what David is doing as he's bringing the Ark of, uh, of the Covenant back. He's doing it with all his might. It says they are celebrating before God with all of their might. And as he's doing so, you'll notice here at the end of this verse, we certainly should not overlook this, but he's using instruments of music that were often associated with joy and worship under the Old Testament worship. It was something that was authorized under their system of worship, but it is not today. Under the system that he was under, he did it with everything that he had, with all of his soul and with all of his strength and all of his passionate heart. He was doing it with all of his might, celebrating before God. David was a worshiper of God who was on fire, you might say, for the Lord. Let me suggest to you, brethren, that that's the kind of passion that we need to have for the Lord as well. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, Paul tells us that we are not to be lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That word fervent means on fire. Paul calls for us not to slow down in our service and our worship to the Lord, but instead be on fire for God. And when the scriptures talk about having a passion for God, there's a couple of terms that they use to describe that passion. And that is hunger and thirst. For example, in the Old Testament, David didn't write this psalm, but he could have. In Psalm 42, in verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Does that describe your life and your attitude towards God and worshiping Him? Your desire to wonder, when can I come again and worship God? I'm thirsting for God, as a, as a deer for, does for the water. And then in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they be, shall be satisfied. You know, passion for God involves hungering and a thirsting on our part that we so desire to want to be with God. We can't wait till the next time that we can worship God so much that it becomes the consuming passion in our lives. And I think that's what we see in the life of David. It's the only thing that really matters to us here. It's the only thing that we think about. And if there's something that gets in the way of getting to God, we remove it, we overcome it, we past it. I think maybe the problem is, for many of us, is we really just don't know what it means to hunger and thirst. We don't know what it means to physically do that because seldom do we miss a meal. How many of you over the last few decades have missed a meal because you could not find one, because you couldn't get to one? I'm not talking about someone who's been too busy to eat, or maybe they just don't feel like it, or maybe you're on a diet or something like that. But because they could not get a meal, missed a meal. Maybe you have. But we don't see that very often in our country today. We just don't know what it truly means to be physically hungry. And I'm concerned that we really don't know what it means to be spiritually hungry either. Because what the psalmist talked about, what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes is something deeper than just dragging yourself out of bed on Sunday morning and making sure you come to services. It's a passion. It is a hunger for Christ. It's what David had. It's what we need to have. 
And if we have a passion for the Lord, it's going to show up in several ways I'm going to share with you first uh, this evening. First of all, it's going to show up in a single-mindedness towards God's Word. You know, the person who truly hungers and thirsts after righteousness will not allow himself to be distracted by anything else. We talked about on Wednesday evening that the definition of worry and anxiety is having a distracted mind, a divided mind. And the cure for anxiety is to have a single-minded focus upon, upon the Lord. Well, the person who is on fire for the Lord, who is passionate for the things of God, is going to have that single-minded focus. He's going to concentrate his hung, on his hunger and satisfying it by being righteous. You see somewhat of the paradoxical nature of the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Beatitudes specifically when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's interesting, isn't it, that in order to be satisfied, we first got to hunger and we have to thirst. We often think of it otherwise, don't we? That in order to be satisfied, you've got to have a lack of hunger and a lack of thirst. But that's not what Jesus says about that. We have to hunger and truly thirst for righteousness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 22, he, Paul tells us to abstain from every form of evil, is how the New American Standard says it. And that includes avoiding things that, although perhaps are not harmful in and of itself, may spoil one's spiritual appetite. You know, usually, not this week, but usually we tell our children not to, uh, not to eat between meals and not to snack uh, right before a meal. Now, all those rules go out the door at Grandma's house, but we tell them that so that when, it, when the meal time comes, they will be hungry so they can feast on the real food and real nourishment that goes on there. But if we are snacking on meals, then obviously we're not going to be ready to eat. And, and when we are snacking on meals spiritually, snacking in between meals, when we're focusing on other things and filling ourselves up with other things rather than spiritual things, uh, we allow them to take our spiritual appetite away from us. And we're not craving the things of God as much as we are the sweets of the world, the pleasures. We have to stay hungry spiritually. That's the only way we'll ever be satisfied. Second of all, if we have a passion for the Lord, a hungering and thirsting after God, we're going to have an active pursuit of righteousness. You know, hungry people, I understand, spend most of their time seeking after food every day and securing that. Sure, they do other things as well, but their priority is always their hunger. And so it must be with us spiritually as well. Again, some people get themselves so busy with worldly things that they starve themselves to death spiritually. There are, of course, their secular jobs. There is recreation. There is sleeping and hobbies and really doing nothing at all. Even in today's modern world, technology, whether it be cell phones or computer screens or television screens or movies or, or Facebook or whatever it is, sometimes we are filling ourselves up with all of these things and we have no hunger for spiritual things. If we really hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we're truly passionate for God, we're going to spend our time accordingly. It means taking advantage of every opportunity that you have to grow spiritually. Thirdly, it means if we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we're going to have this passionate heart for God, we're going to have to spend time in, in studying and reading God's Word and in prayer. You know, the Bible is God's directions on how to attain unto righteousness. And if we truly hunger for it, then we're going to naturally spend time in God's book on it. You know, sometimes we come together as in worship service, and of course we're studying God's Word together. But there are those sometimes who believe that that's enough for them. And maybe they don't read their Bible enough at home or study it enough at home. But can you imagine, we only do that a couple times a week on Sunday and Wednesday and most weeks. But can you imagine just eating a meal twice a week? Maybe having a big feast on Sunday and a little snack on Wednesday, and that be it? And that just is to get us all through the week. It doesn't work that way physically, and it certainly doesn't work that way spiritually. We also, if we are hungering and thirst for righteousness, we're going to pray frequently and regularly unto God, the source of righteousness, and to ask Him to aid us in being righteous. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17 says that we are to pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean we're constantly to go around in one prayer. It doesn't mean that we never stop a prayer. But I tell you what, I never stop eating. That doesn't mean that I'm constantly eating. It just means that it's a regular part of my life. I eat all the time to keep my body going. And you do too as well. And we must pray in the same way. But do we spend as much time in prayer as we do with our feeding and nourishing our physical bodies? 
spiritual body is obviously so much more important. But also, if we're going to be passionate about worshiping and serving God, like David, our passion is going to be manifested in our public worship as well. In Psalm 122, in verse 1, he said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Was that your attitude this evening in coming? I hope that it was, and it probably was for most of you, that you're excited to come to the house of the Lord, not because of who is speaking, but because of what you were doing and the throne of God of which you were coming before. Brethren will often miss Sunday mornings, however, for Bible study or Wednesday evening night Bible study because they lack a simple passion for God. You know, when people are not here, with, with the exceptions of illnesses or extenuating circumstances, it's because they simply don't care enough to be here. Jesus said of the church in Laodicea, I wish that you were cold or hot in Revelation 3 and verse 15. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I, I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And thus the Lord says it would be better if you were one way or the other. Jesus is not saying I, I wish that they were cold and that they had never become Christians. He, he desires for all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. But in contrast, he's given an emphasis to their lukewarmness. In other words, he wants us to be either passionate or dead, but not somewhere in between. At least when someone's cold, when they're dead, they know that they're in error, and you're most likely to move them to repentance. But for the lukewarm or the indifferent, they don't care enough to change and cannot be reached. They've convinced themselves that they're fine the way they are. And that's the way it is for many who miss for various reasons. They've convinced themselves that they're just all right the way that they are. That they might just barely slide into heaven, but they'll still be there. Let me tell you, no one is just going to barely slide into heaven. Only those who have made a conscious effort to be in heaven will be there. Only those who have a passionate heart for God. And when we are here worshiping, maybe sometimes we don't have the enthusiasm for worship like David did. Remember again, 2 Chronicles 13 and verse 8, he was celebrating before the Lord with all of his might. Could that be said of your worship? As you sing your songs this evening, we pray to God, are we doing that with all of our might? And I appreciated our song leaders uh, this whole week. You've done a great job. But I want to say to the song leaders that there's a lot of burden that's put upon you because the congregation feels the zeal that you express in your, in your worship to the Lord. So put your whole heart into your worship and worship Him uh, with all of your might. But let me also say this, that if we have a passion about God and serving Him and hunger and thirst for righteousness, like David, we're going to tell that about, we're going to tell God, tell about God to other people. In Psalm 22, in verse 22, David wrote, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I'm going to tell everybody about you. In Psalm 145 and verse 6, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. And David not only had this passion, but the Apostle Paul did as well. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, for the Israelites who had not come to Christ yet, is for their salvation. But unfortunately, you know what? Paul's attitude is different from many Christians today. There was a survey that was done by a pollster, you may have heard of him, George Barna, who polled those in the religious world. So I understand that this takes the, denomination into, the denominations into account here. But he found that about 53% of those people who claim to be born again, feel a, uh, only f they feel a sense of responsibility to tell others about their faith. I recognize that that is denominational world included, but I can't help but think that those numbers probably aren't too far off from the Lord's church as well. And I don't know how that compares with previous generations, but I have a feeling that it's a lot less today than it used to be. Even in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, that those who were scattered, it says, went about telling, preaching the gospel everywhere they went. It seems that we're just content many times to just disagree and go on our way. But I want you to understand, brethren, that people are just as lost today as ever. And they're looking for some meaning, some reason in their life, some purpose in their life, some sense of purpose. When was the last time that you tried to share the gospel with someone? If you're like most, you might be embarrassed to answer. So what has happened to our passion for the lost? Is it maybe that we are scared we won't say the right thing? 
Well, if that's the case, we need to be better prepared. And maybe we just need to remember that it is God who transforms hearts, not us. That we're just the messengers. Or maybe we're too concerned about offending other people. You know, that seems to be the biggest sin in, in today's culture is you just don't want to offend anybody else. But what is more offensive than letting someone go on their merry way knowing that they are headed to hell? Have we embraced postmodernism or political correctness so much that we've watered down our doctrines that maybe we have fed into the lie that all roads lead to heaven? I sure hope that that's not the case. But the person with a true heart of God sees other people as God does, as a lost soul in need of a Savior. And one who has a passionate heart for God is one who is eager to tell others about the Savior that we have found. And that is the passion that David had and that we need to have as well. You know, I, I hate it when people do this, and I, I want to make sure that I don't do it as well, but I hate to paint with a broad brush. But maybe if there's one thing that is often lacking that I've seen in the congregations of the Lord people today is that we lack a passion, a zeal. We have so many things that we're involved in that the things of God often get pushed to the back burner of our lives. But wouldn't it be great if we are people who are enthusiastic about the things of God as we are about our hobbies, about our television programs, about our Facebook status, about our children's sports, about politics, about exercise or diet routines. Those are things we all get riled up as as Americans. But are we as passionate about God as we are those things? Imagine if we were passionate about those things. I think our schedules would be changed to not make time for God, but give God the time that is due to Him. We would, uh, we would worship and we would worship vibrantly and alive and people would be attentive, maybe even responsive. And people would invest large blocks of time in developing and growing in their relationship with Christ. We would sacrifice in order to invest in the things of God and we would set aside time for, for Bible study and seek out Bible studies and gospel meetings where we can develop our spiritual lives. Like new grandparents who are trying to always show off their pictures of their grandchildren to everyone, we would talk about the Lord constantly, even to people who aren't really interested. We need to have that same passion that David had for his Lord. But one thing we do need to make sure of is that we have to have our passion rightly directed. You know, David in the scriptures by no means is painted in a perfect light. And that's one of the things I love about studying the life of David is because we see ourselves in David. But what the scriptures do paint about David is all honesty and that David struggled with the same things that we do. And one thing certainly that David could not be accused of is lacking a passion for God. But one thing he was guilty of, at least in this passage, is a misguided passion. You remember, David was very passionate about bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He was celebrating before the Lord with all of his might, verse 8 tells us. But I want you to back up one verse. I told you we were going to skip verse 7 and come back to it. Let's go back to verse 7 now. And I want you to see how they transported the Ark, of course, was in an unscriptural way. Verse 7 says, They carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And so the ones who were put in charge of this were Uzzah and Ahio. And I don't know from what tribe they were, but here they were put in charge of this. Well, that's not the way the Lord told them to do this. Now, they started out, their trip was just fine. Remember verse 8, everything's going, everybody's happy, they're excited about this, they're celebrating with all their might as they're moving the Ark of the Covenant along on a cart. But as they're going down the road, we see that they run into a bump in the road, literally. Verse 9 says, When they came to the threshing floor of Kidron, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The ark of the covenant appeared as if it was about to fall off that cart. You see, if it wasn't on the cart to begin with, that wouldn't have been an issue. But of course, he reaches out there to, to steady that and to keep it from falling. Seems like a very good thing to do. But notice what happened in verse 10. When he touched it, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah so that he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. You know, the problem with this story is that it just seems hard to swallow. Now, many of us, we've studied this all of our lives and we're used to it, but if you're reading through this the first time, it just seems so unnatural to us. Why 
would God strike down Uzzah for trying to protect the Ark of the Covenant? Wasn't that a good thing? Did God really want his ark to fall down, maybe bust and break and dent up? Wasn't Uzzah just trying to help? Did God not appreciate the passion of David and the Israelites in trying to get this ark back to Jerusalem? It almost seems offensive to the reader that God would choose to kill Uzzah for something that in our minds might seem so trivial as just touching the ark. After all, Uzzah was trying to help. He's trying to protect the ark. Why would God kill him? Well, that's why so many people would ask today, do you want to serve a God like that? A God who strikes down people like Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira? Is that the kind of God you want to, you want to, to serve? Well, that might not be the best way to ask the question. Why did God strike down Uzzah? Well, the answer is because even though David was passionate about transporting the, the ark, he didn't do it the way that p- pleased God. If just for a moment you'll look in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the parallel passage in verse 7, it says, The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there. Now, why? Was it because he touched the ark? Was it because he disobeyed a commandment? Well, we would say all of those things, and that might be true, but that's not what the Scripture says. Instead, it says that he struck him down there for his irreverence towards God. And he died there by the ark of God. You see, he was irreverent. He did not treat the ark of the covenant as holy and special. It was considered so holy that only the high priest could enter into the room in which it was, uh, in which it was set in the tabernacle and later the temple. And he could only do so once a year. And so God designed the ark that it was special and it would be moved and transported in a very special way. According to Numbers chapter 4, at the base of the ark, there were these four little ringlets on either side. And there were poles that were made out of gold that were to be inserted into these ringlets. And when they moved the tabernacle and its furnishings, there was a specific tribe, in fact, a special group of people within that tribe, the Kohathites, who were the only ones who were supposed to be moving that ark. And even they were not able to even look at the ark. They were supposed to put porpoise skins over it and then lift it up and move it out of the tabernacle to its next location. God had decreed, in fact, in Numbers chapter 4, that the penalty for violating any of the commands regarding the ark was death. And now you see that being played out here uh, years later. It was to be treated holy, and the reason why is because it represented the very presence of God himself. But instead of transporting the ark in a way that pleased God, what David did, did what seemed right to him. Again, I want you to go back now to uh, 1 Chronicles 13. And notice who it is that David appeals to here in verse 2. And I don't want to read too much into this, but I want you to notice how it's worded here. David said to all the assembly of Israel, and by the way, in verse 1, he consults with all the captains of the thousands and the hundreds. He's consulting with them. And that means to me getting their advice on these things. But verse 2 says, he told the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it's from God, the Lord our God, let us send everywhere for our kinsmen, the Levites, to move these things. Now I want you to notice there that he says, If it seems good to you, and if it's from the Lord. Now I appreciate him putting that, and if it's from the Lord in there. But really it doesn't matter if it seems good to you or not. And when we come to verse 4, David says, or the chronicler says, then all the assembly said that they would do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of the people. Does that really matter if it's right in the eyes of the people? No, what matters is if it's right in the eyes of the Lord. And there never is an appeal to the Lord. You never see that. And so later on in chapter 15 and verse 13, We get some insight into this. As they try to move the ark again, and they do it successfully there, David starts out by saying, we did not seek him the first time according to the ordinance, which tells me that David had the ability to know the ordinance, probably knew the ordinance, but didn't do it the way that the scriptures indicated it should be done. But you know, this is often the standard of authority, isn't it, for people? They go by whatever feels right. Remember what he says, do what it seems good to you. And they may all say, you know, that seems right to us, David. Let's do this. Let's put it on an ark and let's move it. But you know, that's what people do today as well. They go by whatever feels right, what seems good to you. 
People may say, well, you know, I feel that I'm saved. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Uh, they claim that the Holy Spirit is personally leading them. And the Holy Spirit does guide us today, but not like that. This is what God wants me to do. Well, how do you know that? We talked about Sunday morning. Remember the lady who came from Lipscomb? Who said, you know, I get a bad feeling when the doors are closed for me, but I get a good feeling when I know I'm, when I'm doing what, what God wants me to do. Well, feelings are not something that we ought to be trusting in. There's all kinds of warning throughout the Scriptures. Proverbs 14 and verse 12, there's a way that seems right to a man or to a woman, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 28 and verse 26, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself. It's not based upon his feelings or how he feels, nor is it a man who walks to direct his steps. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why trust in your heart? Instead, let us have a passionate heart for God, but let us not be led by our heart. Let us be led by the Word of God. You know, it is possible to have a passion for God and yet still be way off course. And this isn't hard to illustrate. You know, the Islamic extremists, are they passionate for their God? You bet they are. In fact, they're so zealous that they'll fly an airplane into a building and kill thousands of people thinking that they're doing the right thing. They're passionate. They're zealous enough to give their lives, but they're not right. The Mormons are passionate about their faith. Most of them are very zealous. Their commitment sometimes to evangelism maybe puts us to shame. They work hard at telling others about their belief and they work hard to let their faith permeate many areas of their lives. But I want you to understand, both of these groups, they're passionate for their faith, but their faith is wrong. They're trusting in something that is not God. And you know what Paul could relate? Before the apostle came to the Lord, in Philippians chapter 3, he describes that situation. He describes his former life as a Jew. And he said, as to zeal, you could say as to passion there, a persecutor of the church. He was a passionate persecutor. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. He was so passionate for Judaism that he persecuted the church. But he wasn't right. Passion, zeal, doesn't mean that you're right. In fact, the Jews of the first century fell into the same category. Remember we read earlier Romans 10 and verse 1 where he says, My heart's desires for their salvation. Well, he goes on to still, still talk about those Jews of the first century in verse 2. And he says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. The Jews were all excited about God, and they were very zealous about keeping to the very details about the law of God, but they were wrong. Friends, it's... <coughs> easy and it's possible to be passionate but be wrong about what we're doing. And there are many churches who are also very passionate about what they do. But passion and sincerity is not all that matters. Maybe God doesn't strike down a church today like He did with Uzzah, but He's just as concerned about doing things the way that pleases Him and not just by what seems right to us. But even individuals on the correct church sometimes fall into misplaced passion. They're religious. They want to develop a relationship with God, but let's make sure that everything that we do in our marriages, in raising children, as we work, everything that we do, that it's not just done passionately, but it's done according to God's will. Do it with all your heart, but do it the way that God has told you to, the right way. Now, fortunately, David's heart led him to change his actions Immediately after Uzzah is slain, David responded as many of us would here in First Chronicles 13 and verse 11. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. You know, here again we see the passion of David. He's passionate. When he, this happens, he's upset. He's angry, as sometimes our children are when we, when we punish them uh, 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 right away. But hopefully if they have the right heart, as David does, you can see that, that his heart melted and it changed very quickly. For verse 12, it says, David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? Here was a man who learned the lesson, I think, that he was supposed to learn, that he had a reverence for God. Remember the reason that Uzzah was struck down is he didn't treat it holy. But now here's David with this reverence and it says, how can we do this 
the right way. And so in 1 Chronicles 15 and verse 2, as they begin to move the ark again, David said, no one is to carry the ark of, the, of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and minister to him forever. We're not putting this on a card again. We're going to do it the right way. Brethren, by all means, be passionate about your worship and your service to the Lord. But in your passion, don't forget that it's not about us. It's about God and pleasing Him. Well, I want us to learn one more lesson from all of this, and then the meeting will be yours. And that is that David was not ashamed of his passion. I want us to go to 2 Samuel's account now, and I want us to look at one more lesson here this evening. As they move the Ark of the Covenant now the second time, this time doing it in the right way, I want you to understand that David didn't lose any of that zeal, any of that passion. He's just as passionate. Notice here in verse 12. Now it was told King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the Ark of God. David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David. Notice it says, with gladness. And then in verse 14, he says, And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, as it speaks of David here, I've heard people try to justify dancing today uh, by saying that David was dancing before the Lord, and it's certainly okay to do. Understand, once for one thing, that what David was doing was not a lascivious type of dance. He's basically just jumping up and down in excitement. That's what's being described here. But second of all, understand again that we're not under the same system of authority. That just as we don't use instruments today as they did, we don't dance before the Lord. It's not an authorized act of worship. And so here he is doing what is authorized under his, under his covenant, and he is celebrating once again, worshiping God as passionately as he can with all of his might. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. But as in every crowd, they're all excited, but in every crowd, not everyone is as passionate about this as David was. I want you to look in verse 16 what happens here. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, that is the previous king's daughter who was married to David, looked out the window and saw King David, and here describing the dancing, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. He had a passionate, zealous heart for God. He was worshiping the God with all of his might, with all of his heart, but she has a bitter heart, an embarrassed heart. And when she saw David alone later, Michael tells David of her disgust. In verse 20, when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. Now, there's, there's some sarcasm in that sentence that she, she makes here. Sarcasm is something that's at least 3,000 years old because we see it here. And she says, look, you were not distinguished at all. Here Michael was, grown up in the house of a king, and she knows sophistication. But David was not acting very sophisticated there. And she goes on to say, he, that is David, uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant's maze as one who foolishly, who, uh, foolish ones who shamelessly uncovers himself. You uncovered yourself. Now, he's not saying you got naked in the streets. I've heard people make that argument. But instead, he took off his royal robe is really what it comes down to. Remember earlier, he was wearing a linen ephod is what it says. What he does is he becomes like one of the people. He's acting like common people out in the streets. And there's nothing wrong with that. He is very, uh, very zealous and, and passionate about his worship to the Lord. And he doesn't care what anybody thinks around him. All he is focused on is worshiping God and him being pleased. And yet David here is unfazed by this. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished." You know, being a man after God's own heart doesn't mean that you can't have a good comeback. And that's exactly what he does here. He says, touche. You know, I don't care what you think, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do before the Lord as I worship him in a way that certainly is pleasing to him. And interestingly, in verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It wasn't that she was just barren. I think we get the idea here that David didn't think much of her after this. 
Essentially, David told his wife that he didn't care what others thought about his passion for God. He says, this is between me and my God. Understand this, that when you're bold enough to be outwardly passionate about your God, not everyone's going to be excited for you. Not everyone is going to share that same passion with you. In fact, there are going to be some people who will rebuke you, like Michael did, and they will discourage you. You know, in our culture today, and even sometimes within the church, it's okay to be a little religious. But if you're a radical follower of Jesus Christ, you're not going to fit in anymore. And the world is going to ridicule you and call you a fanatic. When you are diligently seeking to follow Jesus, you're going to face opposition. And you're going to face some criticism. And sometimes those who oppose your spiritual progress are members of your own family. Or sometimes it is people who are claiming to be Christians. Even within the church, it seems to be a little religious, but don't, don't be too religious. How many times have you heard someone say, praise the Lord? And that's good if you do, but sometimes we think, oh, if they say praise the Lord, they must be, they must be charismatic. But isn't, aren't we the people of all who should be saying praise the Lord? Now, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you go out and, and you say that, but we should not be afraid to do so. Don't be afraid to praise the Lord. To give glory to God. We sing it collectively, but we sometimes dare not say it individually in a conversation. When you hear that something has been done to the glory of God, why not give praise and honor to Him in our conversation? Why not, when there is a good point that's made from this pulpit, say amen and encourage your brethren to know, I agree with that. And we need more of that. Not for show, obviously, but as a passionate expression of your, your approval. Express your passion, your hunger for God, just like David did. And for those who are doing that, others who see it, don't judge them. Don't say that they're just doing it for show. Don't criticize them. But don't let others' lack of passion keep you from having the passion that you need to have for God. Let me tell you that today in our country and in the world, passion for God's honor is not easy. And sometimes it's the lonely path. When we passionately stand up for what is right, many times we're going to stand alone. In 1997, on the campus of the University of Nebraska, they were holding a, a class, a seminar, I guess you might say, uh, extracurricular on what the Bible says about homosexuality. I understand in those days, we're talking about 20 years ago, homosexuality certainly wasn't as blatant as it is now. Growing up here in Columbus, Mississippi, I never saw a homosexual. You heard about little rumors of things, but... It just wasn't the way it was, and I have a feeling it wasn't that much different in many parts of our country. And so this is the beginnings of these types of things in 1997. Well, the meeting came together, and they taught. It was led by an Episcopalian minister and a, and a Methodist minister who happened to be a woman. And they tried to defend homosexuality from the Bible. And after a long meeting, there was one girl who stood up. Her name was Lydia. And she spoke with a shaken voice, and she told everyone in that room what the Bible really said about homosexuality and how wrong it was and how it was an abomination to the Lord and that those who are involved in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as she did so, people were laughing and jawing her on and booing her and saying how uh, primitive she was and that sort of thing. But yet she stood there alone and stood up for what was right. And the reason I know that is because I was sitting in the chair watching all this happening. And I just let her sit there, or let her stand alone. And I think back on that, and I think, why not? Why not stand up for what is right? And I have to wonder if more of us would have been more passionate and stood up long ago, that maybe things would be a little bit different in our society, even today. And friends, when you stand up for Christ and His teaching, don't, stand up, don't expect the world to applaud because they're not. They're going to laugh and they're going to sneer. And they're going to say, who are you to judge others? The world is not going to applaud you and you won't get your own television show and you won't be on the cover of People magazine, at least not in a positive way. But God will applaud you and God will reward you for defending His honor. And that's really all that matters. And sometimes you may be the only one standing up for the truth even among your brethren. You know that. And it may be that you are the only one or ones who are standing up 
in the congregation, the only one who is passionate enough to stand up for the truth, to stand up against error. And all your brethren may laugh at you, and they may ridicule you, and they may mistreat you. But brethren, God will reward you. God needs more people who will stand up for what is right and will not back down, regardless of the result. We need the passion of David. You know, I've always been fascinated with Jesus' words in Matthew 11 as he speaks of John the Baptist. In verse 12, he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. That's a strange verse, isn't it? What does it mean, violent people? But I think what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God is not for those who are nonchalant. It's for those who passionately pursue God with all their hearts, those who are fighting to get into it. And God spoke to the people of Judah in Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. He says, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me, notice, with all your heart. And what that tells me is if we don't search with God, for God in all of our heart, we're not going to find him. And so I raise this question as we come to a close this evening. How much of that passion do you have in your life? How interested are you in knowing God and being close to Him? Because your answer to that question will determine how much God is a part of your life. You may come to church every Sunday, but are you actively, passionately seeking God? Does a little dose of God do it for you? Or do you want everything that God has for you and you feel like you just can't get enough of Him? that like a deer who pants for the waters, your soul thirsts after him. That's what we need, is we need a passion for God, just like David did. This evening, maybe you're not even a child of God. We encourage you to come to Christ. Make your life right with God, repenting of your sins, coming to him in simple trusting faith, confessing your faith. Not on anything that you've earned, not on your own righteousness will you be saved, but as you submit to him in baptism, you can come in contact with that blood of Jesus Christ that washes your sins away. But we must continue on that path, that zealous path, that passionate path of the Lord and strive to serve Him every single day of our lives. Maybe you've not done that. Maybe you've lost your zeal for the Lord. I encourage you to rekindle that within you and to let that burn again. Maybe you have some sin in your life you need to repent of. We encourage you to make your life right with God. But again, maybe it's just a, a care or concern that you have that you need the prayers of the saints for. Lay that burden upon one another. Brethren, I certainly appreciate everybody this week. I appreciate all that you are every day. And my prayers will be with you, and I hope that you will be praying for us as well. If there's anyone who needs to respond to the Lord's invitation, why don't you come forward now as we stand as we sing.